Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Joseph Wang, FedGuy12 on Twitter, and he is the ultimate Fed insider. So we know that tomorrow we get the CPI number out. Uh, we just did a video on that. But then Wednesday, the Federal Reserve comes out and they're going to announce what the next rate hike might be. So I thought there's no better person to get on and discuss what the Fed will most likely do, not just on Wednesday, but at their next meeting in February and then throughout 2023. No better person than Joseph Wang. So we got him here right now for you. Joseph, welcome back to the show, buddy. Hey, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And George, you make a great point. It's not really about what the Fed would do this week. It's really about the trajectory of rate hikes that we should be focusing on. Yeah. So, so let's start. I was doing my little drum roll right there. What do you think they're going to do on uh, Wednesday with consensus at a 50 basis point hike or, or 100% chance of 50 basis point hike? Now, this okay. is how the Fed works. The Fed does not like to surprise the markets. It doesn't really help anyone. So when they're going to do something, they telegraph it far in advance. And if they ever suddenly change their mind, um, they'll leak it out to the press so that the market can adjust. And we've seen that happen with the Wall Street Journal before. Yeah. <laughs> so they're very clear. They want to do 50 basis points. They just Powell basically came flat out and strongly suggested that at his last speech a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. But um, what we're really, really focusing on in the market is what the trajectory of the rate hikes would be coming um, next year. And I think that's really important because right now there's a divergence between what the market is pricing in and what the Fed has been suggesting. So I'll just give a background to, to, to your viewers who may not be following this as closely. So the market right now is suggesting that the Fed is going to hike to about 5% in the first quarter of next year, and then they're going to start cutting rates pretty rapidly throughout the year. That is very different from what the Fed has projected. So each Joseph, quarter, when you say the market, are you talking about the bond market? And I'm talking about short-term interest rate futures. Okay. So these are basically bets on um, what the short-term interest rate futures would be, which are largely controlled by the Fed in the very short term. So that's what the market is thinking. What the Fed is saying, though, is something very different. According to the Fed's September projections, so each quarter the Fed gives the markets their projections of what they're going to do. The, the Fed was thinking that they would hike to maybe four, four and a half, five percent next year and hold it throughout the throughout the year and then only come down slightly in 2024. Mm. Now, Chair Powell, in his latest speech, said that he he thinks that the projections December, so this week, are going to be a little bit higher than they are in September. So while the market is thinking that the Fed is going to start cutting next year, the Fed is actually pretty determined in saying that they're going to stay higher for longer. So I think the market, so I think people who follow the Fed think that they're going to raise their projections um, for next year for, in the December projection from to about 5% throughout the next year. So that's very different from going to 5% and cutting what the market is expecting. Okay, so um, getting up to 5% Fed funds and keeping it there. Yes, yes, higher 24. for longer, basically. Yeah, so, right, okay. The, the Fed is also very transparent in how they're approaching this. So Chair Powell, in his latest speech, he was talking about the indicators that he was looking at. So as we all know, inflation is too high, and the Fed is trying to get inflation lower. Now, Powell was looking at inflation through three components. The first component, goods inflation. The second, housing. And the third, services excluding housing. Mm. Now, Powell was saying that, well, we see goods inflation go up a lot during covid and now it's coming back down. So, you know, it's on its downward trajectory. So it's going to be okay. Housing went up a lot and it's also coming down lower. So in the next few months, eventually it's going to come down. So what he's really looking at right now is services inflation. Now, services inflation is really important because it's about half of PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. So that's what he's focusing on. Now, the primary determinant of um, services inflation is wage inflation. Obviously, wages are the largest cost component to it, to services. So that's why the market is very much focused on uh, non-farm payrolls and any changes in, the, let's say, the growth of wages, because that's going to be the key in understanding what the Fed would do next year. Now, the Fed is using some very interesting um, data to try to understand what wages would be the next year. So there is some interesting research from the Fed that's showing that 
part of the reason, a very big part actually, of why wages have been increasing so rapidly is because we have a shortage of workers due to early retirements. Um, if you look, if you think back to what projections were for the labor force um, today, projections that were made, let's say pre-2020, pre-COVID, compared to where the labor force is here today, um, the economy in the U.S. is about short, about 3 million people. And that's what's driving the tremendous upward pressures in wages. So wages right now are growing about 6.5%. And that's that's much higher than they were pre-COVID. And the reason why is that we don't we're, they're missing workers. And some Fed research suggests that the missing workers are largely workers that, A, retired early, and B, um, retired and did not want to come back. So usually what happens in the labor market is someone retires, gets bored, and comes back to the labor market. So that's not happening right now. So you have this big demographic shift where uh, due to the population aging, there's less of a supply of workers coming into the economy, pushing up uh, wages. Now, this was always going to happen, but because of COVID, a lot of people accelerated their retirements. And so this shortage of labor is happening earlier. So the labor force participation. Uh, yes, exactly. So I, a lot of people are thinking about why that the retirements have accelerated. Some people think it's because people are worried about COVID. I mean, if you're in the retirement age bracket, you probably are a little bit worried about COVID. Um, or it could be that you made so much money off the stock market that you don't have to work anymore. So in any case, um, that doesn't look like it's going to be reversing. So that suggests to the Fed that, you know, we're going to have continued wage pressure for the foreseeable future. And that suggests that they are going to have to stay higher for longer as, as they're predicting. So um, I expect that's probably what they're going to do this week. And they're probably going to try to push back against the market uh, that is pricing aggress- uh, cuts next year. Because if the market's pricing in cuts, you're essentially easing financial conditions. You're making the stock market go higher. You're making rate, uh, mortgage rates go lower again. And that's uh, kind of defeating the inflation fighting point of tightening monetary policy. Right. So the pushback there would be, okay, Joseph, uh, if they continue with their rate hikes and if they keep it up there uh, too long, then this is going to bring, you know, the stock market down, the housing market down, and it's going to decrease the purchasing power. So those people will have to go back into the workforce. Oh, or you're going to create some sort of crash, some credit event, some black swan event. But I think then you would say, I don't know how you'd respond to the people going back into the workforce, but I think with a credit event, or the credit market's freezing up, you'd say, well, I'm not too worried about that because of the additional tools that the Fed has at their disposal right now. They can prop that up just to make sure that they can sustain the level of interest rate hikes for a little longer. Not that that's a net benefit on you know over the long run, uh, yeah. but they do have that tool to say, hey, um, you know, we know that the credit markets are freezing up, but we're going to go ahead and back that up with our balance sheet uh, in order to allow us to keep this five percent longer because the cpi is still at uh you know four or five or above the two percent target yeah that's exactly right george the fed has a lot of tools to, in case there is some kind of financial hiccup i think another narrative in the market and this is something that i hear about a lot is that a lot of market participants are thinking that the u.s is going to go into a recession next year and because of that the fed will have to start cutting rates and i, I think what i think that could be the trick that could be the case and certainly that's what the Fed has been doing the past few decades. Um, but there is also another case to be made, and this is the one that I believe in, that we might be in some kind of fundamental change, fundamental regime change in how the economy works and in turn how the Fed is going to function. Now, remember just a bit earlier, I was talking about we have this big demographic problem where structurally speaking, uh, because the boomers had smaller families, we have a workforce that is shrinking. So for the past 100 years, the working age population in the U.S. has always been increasing, but it's not increasing anymore. So if you have a structural shortage of labor, that that really means that you could have recession, not because there's insufficient demand, but because there's insufficient supply. And let me give you an example to make that more concrete. Now, suppose you are a company that manufactures cars. You're manufacturing 100 cars a year. If the next year you're manufacturing 90 cars, obviously there's a decrease in output. So you could say that it's in recession. Now, for the past couple of decades, the reason that a car manufacturer would be producing fewer cars because there wasn't enough demand. 
because when enough demand, so what the Fed would do is the Fed would cut rates, try to stimulate demand, let's say make those auto loans cheaper so people would go and buy cars. So that factory could be producing at 100 cars a year again. Right, right, right. Now, now though, if, for example, the factory is producing 90 cars now, it could also be because they can't find enough workers. Remember, we have a worker shortage because the, popula- the working force population is shrinking. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's the case, it's not because... The, so we're in a recession producing 90 cars instead of 100, but it's not because there's not enough demand. It's, a, it's simply because there's not enough supply. Now, that really changes everything um, because when, you, when there's a recession because not enough supply... That means the prices go higher. Yes, you'd have nominal GDP growth, but real negative real wheat. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, let's go back to this car example. Well, we kind of had an example of that already. People wanted to buy the cars, but because of supply constraints, they couldn't produce enough. And I'm not talking about these anything COVID-related supply constraints. I'm talking about just really fundamental demographic-driven worker supply constraints. Now, if that's the case, well, the Fed doesn't necessarily want to cut rates in a recession then. Uh, because cutting rates just makes demand problem even stronger and makes prices go higher. The, the, the reason the economy is not producing 100 cars is not because there's not enough demand, because there's not enough supply and hiking rates, um, I mean, cutting rates wouldn't help that. So that could be kind of what's, uh, it's a potential scenario of what could be playing out in the next few years. So we could have a recession, but we could have rates remain higher simply because um, the recession is due to the potential output of the economy changing due to fewer people able to work or willing to work at least. That makes a lot of sense, Joseph, but I'm trying to think about that through the lens of M2 and demand because you're, you're assuming that demand stays the same, but now we're starting to see M2 tick down. So let's just assume that M2 continues to decline over 2023, how does demand stay at, at, at a consistent level? You know, and do we get to a point where, yes, that car manufacturer has to raise their prices, but uh, if someone's going to buy the car, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul because in aggregate total, the money supply is going down. Therefore, if they do buy that car at a higher price, that's going to be less money allocated to something else where the price will most likely go down, where they're not as uh, reliant on, let's say, like a commodity input cost. Hmm. You, you see, I always wonder how we, we without an increase in money, you know, that's the Milton Friedman in me, right? Yeah, yeah, Wondering so. how we get that inflation in aggregate total w- without an increase in money supply. And I, I think I've got an answer, but I'd, I'd like to hear what you say first. So... So I think it's really important the way that you approach this to think of things in terms of money because money is basically demand, right? If you have more money, you have to, people have power to spend. I think what where where it becomes very tricky is um, when you look at definitions of money, like say M two, which is basically deposits at a bank. It's it's vulnerable to basically shifts in Fed policy, and I'll give you an example. So during COVID in twenty twenty, there's a tremendous explosion in M two, right? Um, Part of it was simply because the Fed was printing money to go and buy treasury securities. But if you think about it, though, like a treasury security is also kind of like a form of money. When, there is, when the U.S. government prints a treasury security and gives it to someone, uh, they're basically creating things that are creating a form of purchasing power. Um, let's say, for example, that I was working at a company and instead of making instead of receiving my weekly wage in deposits at a bank, I was paid in treasury bills or treasury coupons or something like that. That's not super different from being paid with bank deposits. But, so, yeah, go ahead. Um, so, yeah. what I'm trying to say is that when you're trying to measure money as a form of potential demand, because if you have more money, you can you can you can go and buy stuff. It's a bit constraining to just think of money as deposits out of bank. When if I had let's say $100,000 in treasury securities in my brokerage account, that would also be a form of money, a form of demand that I can spend. And so if you broaden out your definition of money like that to, to take into account other government liabilities, now remember, 
if I have a $100 bill, it's basically a piece of paper issued by the US government. It's really not so different from $100 in treasuries issued by the US government. So if you broaden that definition of money, uh, you realize that oftentimes what we see as fluctuations at M2 uh, doesn't actually change the total amount of money, just its composition. For example, Fed going out, buying treasury securities, and uh, with, uh, with money they print, there's going to be fewer deposits in the bank. I'm sorry more deposits in the bank and fewer treasury securities. So if you want to talk about the, the economy with respect to, let's say, the amount of money being potential demand, I, I find it helpful to have a more broad definition of what this kind of potential spending power is rather than just deposits at a bank. Now, with that lens in, with that lens in mind, uh, in my view, one of the key drivers of, of let's say, inflation, additional demand, isn't so much the growth of M2, but the continued growth of the government deficit, because what the government deficit is, it's the government buying stuff and paying it and paying with it by issuing treasury securities. It's basically printing money from, uh, from this event, from this framework. Now, back to your question, well, what if M2 is not growing? Well, that's that's true. But what if the government deficit continues to grow at a trillion dollars a year, which is projected to? So that gives people continued power to spend. Um, the government is printing government liabilities, printing, uh, spending money by uh, buying stuff by printing um, IOUs, which I think most people consider to be a form of money. I agree with you, but let me play devil's advocate. If the average Joe or, or pension fund, hedge fund, whatever, gets that IOU from the government in the form of a bond, and therefore they have this on their balance sheet instead of the IOU nothing, which would be a green piece of paper. I, I get that, but isn't it true that in order to utilize that purchasing power, they would have to turn it into M2, right? Yes, so if you're taking that treasury and you want to go buy a hot dog with your treasury, uh, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to transfer it one-to-one. -one. You would have to turn that treasury into M2, and therefore that, would, that cash would go onto the balance sheet of the guy that's selling you the hot dog when he turns that into, you know, when he deposits it in his bank. So it's another commercial bank liability. So yes. then, then it would be expressed in the increase in M2 once that asset is turned into purchasing power. Well, it wouldn't be expressed in the increase in M2. It would be expressed. Uh, so here's the thing. So let, let's go back to your example. And you make a very good point. Part of the reason that a big part of the reason that U.S. government treasuries can be money-like is because there's a very deep and liquid secondary market where you can convert treasuries to M2. Um, this is not the case for all types of government. Uh, all foreign uh, foreign governments, for example, don't necessarily have as deep a liquid a market to convert mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. sovereign debt into M2. So it's not necessarily true for them, but for the U.S. it is. Um, if I have treasuries, I can convert it to M2, either by selling it in a deep and liquid market, or I can repo it out, which is also a very deep and liquid repo market. Okay, so, but that actually doesn't change the uh, amount of M2. It simply shifts M2 around. So let's say I have a treasury and I go and sell it to you. You give me your deposits. So what was a deposit that you owned now belongs to me. The total amount doesn't change, just uh, who holds it. And this actually would not show up in the velocity of money either. Because, and uh, uh, Professor Richard Werner makes a really good point on this. A velocity of, so velocity of money basically measures uh, GDP and is a, is a ratio between GDP and money supply. But the thing is that if I use my money and I buy a financial asset, it doesn't contribute to GDP, so it doesn't show up. Mm, um, but if I use right. my money and I buy um, a hot dog or a haircut, then it shows up because it actually uh, was used to purchase a real economy, good or services. So right, when you right. go, when, when I go and I take my treasury and I sell it to convert it to M2, it doesn't show up in the velocity of money. But subsequently, when I go and pr I purchase something, it, it would. What if you're, what if that pension fund is using the treasury as collateral for a loan? And then that they're they're being lent the money. Then they go ahead and use that to buy stocks. Then that would effectively increase M two, wouldn't it? 
because then then oh, that that really depends on who funds the uh the, the repo loan. yeah the the repo. Okay. if it's a commercial bank you're exactly right the commercial bank can create yeah. m2 out of thin air but it's not necessarily a commercial bank it could be just the rich investor has right, some cash right. lying around in the bank and lends it to you so um the number the amount of m2 in the system doesn't change just the ownership so instead okay. of the yeah yeah, that great points right there. That 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 really, uh, I've given that quite a bit of thought, and uh, it, it is uh, it is very interesting. Let, let's for a moment go back though to the labor force participation being very low. Do you think we could see a big spike in labor force participation if uh, asset prices continue to come down? Because I think you would agree that the Fed really doesn't care about asset prices. In fact, they'd like to see them come down even further. What they really care about is some sort of uh, credit market freezing up. So if we have the bear market in stocks continue, let's say down another 30%, let's say we see housing go down in nominal terms by another, you know, let's say 25%, the Fed's going to be sitting back saying, all right, great, job well done. And don't you think that would prompt a lot of those baby boomers that retired early come back in and start working at Walmart again because they know <laughs> that they're not going to be able to afford to put food on the table in 10 years if they don't get their butt back to work. That's a great question. So, so far, I mean, we've had, you know, so a correction in asset prices for most of the year. We, we're kind of coming back right now. Um, that really hasn't had a big impact on their labor force yeah. participation. Yeah. So if you look at the big picture across demographic groups in 2020, uh, the labor force the, their labor force participation went down across across all demographics, uh, but everyone else is back up except that baby boomer demographic. Now the question as to whether they would come back, I think it, it really depends on why they retired early in the first place. If it's because of health concerns, then you know I, I don't think that a crash in the stock market would bring them back. Mm. But if it's because that they were, you know, had enough money and they already retired, it could it could potentially. But I'm not sure how strong an effect that would be. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that when you're retired, a part of your income is things like social security, which really doesn't depend on the financial markets. Right. And right, secondly, right. I think if you're a boomer and you actually have enough wealth to retire, um, you, you're probably shifting into some more conservative investments. And so uh, when the market comes down a lot, it might not have as big an impact on, on you as if, say, someone who was all in on Tesla. So, mm. so uh, I think that uh it's it it will have an impact but probably not a lot yeah, so yeah it's a very hard problem that the the fed has if they want to make uh say labor force participation among boomers to come back hey guys i want to remind you to check out rebel capitalist pro this is the incredible online investment forum that i have with investment experts Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. And, you know, if they're looking at the Phillips curve, they're just trying to figure out how on earth do we increase the unemployment rate yeah. And um, but to your point, you know, the unemployment rate is a misleading number because it, it doesn't really give you the overall health of the labor market, just the health of the labor market for those people who are working. Uh, when you think about the fact that we could have uh, 100 million people fewer working you know, just in the yeah. labor market, but yet the unemployment rate go down then you ask yourself how productive is society and if you're measuring wealth in terms of goods and services, we're going to be we're going to be a lot poorer, even though that unemployment rate is one percent or whatever it is. Right, so, right. The, yeah, and I think that's exactly what you're pointing ratio. out with your with your car uh, analogy. 
And I think there's another point too, and that I think there's actually not a lot of demand for boomer employees. So if they wanted to come back, you know, I think most employers would, you know, prefer to hire people who are a bit younger than, you know, I mean, I mean, if you're hiring for like McDonald's or Walmart, I imagine you prefer someone who was, you know, a, younger than, than someone who's like in their 60s. It, you know, it's probably cheaper and maybe a bit more difficult, more, more easier to manage as well. So, um, but yeah, I, you're, you know, another yeah. pushback I'd have, Joseph, yeah. is now that I'm just thinking about this, would, would maybe be the bullwhip effect. Because I just did a whiteboard video. You know, Michael Burry talks about this often. And I just did a whiteboard video on Amazon. And, oh, I yeah. included Amazon and Target in there. Yeah. Because, you know, Target came out. They had that horrible quarter. And then they had like $400 million that they yeah. attributed to stolen goods, which just like completely blew my mind, which is why they had they took such a hit over the, mm. the quarter as far as their profits. But um, in this video, I, I went and looked at how many employees Amazon had in 2019. So just prior to, to COVID, they had about 800,000 employees. Now, wow. you fast forward to like a month ago when they came out and announced that they're going to lay off like 10 or 11,000, and they had 1.6 million. Wow. That's One, <laughs> building an that, army there. That's exactly what I said when I, I read that. I just had to do a double and triple take and like, whoa, time out. You're telling me in the last two years, they increased their staff by 100% from 800,000 to 1.6. And then I thought about it and I'm like, well, they don't understand economics. So their managers are sitting there thinking that this increase in demand as a result of stimmy checks and not having to pay your student loan and mortgage and rent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're thinking that this demand is just a result of the booming economy because that's what Joe Biden's telling them. That's what CNBC is telling them. That's what Bloomberg. So they get all this additional demand. So what are you going to do if you're a hiring manager? You're going to hire, 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 because you don't understand that a large degree of that additional demand is just a, a sugar rush. Hmm. It's going to be completely temporary. So you you hire 800,000 up to 1.6, and then all of a sudden the demand goes right back to where it was, let's say, in 2019, or you know, even if it's a little above that, it, it just plummets. So then what do you do? I mean, theoretically, you've got to take your, your, um, your overall staff, employees, down to the level to meet the demand, so that means they got to fire 800,000 people. You know, obviously I'm just using broad numbers here so people understand the concept. But then, you know, that massively increases the unemployment rate even if we don't have labor force participation go up. And it's and if that's Amazon, I mean you would think that would be a bellwether for the entire economy. So that same thing would be playing out at the local nail salon, at the local dry cleaner, at the local restaurant, cafe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's your view on that? Yeah, that's a really good point. We kind of had a turbocharged business cycle, right? We have yeah. the business are always boom and bust, right? And we had a super, 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 supercharged boom. And now it looks like we're having a bit of a bust. And not just Amazon, but if you look across the big tech sectors, especially those that benefited from the pandemic, it looks like they're all laying off soon. Um, if you look at some particular sectors like the startup sector, they're they're being hit really bad. It seems like every day uh, there's layoffs. I think there's a website that tracks startup layoffs, and uh, those bars are going way higher. And so that that definitely, I think, is is going to play into the macro picture a bit. But I think it, it's useful to have a little bit more context because so the tech sector and the people who work in it are you know very influential in in the media and financial Twitter and so forth. If you if you work in, let's say, uh, a big tech company in a big city, you're, you're going to be on Twitter and you would have friends, friends in the media. When you do something, then, you know, everyone hears about it. So it has a big impact on, on your perception. But when you look at the numbers alone, though, um, the tech employment in those, you know, boom sectors, they, it's not a big part of the economy, and which is why over the past few months, you've had a lot of layoffs in, in the tech sector. Um, like say Meta, Amazon, and so forth, but we continue to create more jobs on that each month. So there's that point as well. But I definitely think, though, that I mean things are not going to be what they what they used to be. Uh, what they we had kind of a supercharged boom time the past couple of years, so things are going to slow down a little bit. Now, 
especially in the in the sectors that benefited a lot in the past two years. But uh, it's still unclear to me how big of an overall impact that will have on the broader economy. Right. And right. if you have a lot of job losses in those sectors, well, wages, I mean, we have very fast wage data every month continue to grow. So maybe they will go do uh, work in other sectors as well. So it's definitely a time that that uh, a lot of things are changing. The yeah. structure of the economy could be changing. So it could play out in, in different ways. Yeah. Um, and sense. also something else to note is that it looks like the market is, like I mentioned before, doesn't believe that the Fed is going to tighten. And so a lot of the financial markets are rebounding. Uh, for sectors like big tech, a part of the part of the reason why they were able to, um, I guess, hire so many people and spend so much money is because they basically pay with their stock. Mm. So they hire people and give them big stock options. They're, they're kind of being a little money printer themselves. And the higher their stock price goes, the more they can pay and the more they can buy. And yeah. if we have a rebound in the stock market and, um, well, it looks like things are stabilizing a bit, then we can have them uh, maybe stem the losses or maybe even go back to hiring people again. So uh, it's it's uh, there's a different there's a few different scenarios that could pr- play out. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, Joseph. What I want to do next is I want to go over to the the Fed's balance sheet because I want to get your take on uh, first and foremost, am I am I reading it correctly? And then number two, I've been trying to think through the remittances back to the Treasury yeah. if if the Fed is having to sell at a loss. And I know most of the assets they're allowing to roll off their balance sheet, but I'm assuming that uh, they have had to sell some because the remittances have gone steeply, steeply negative. You've seen that, uh, yeah, that, I have that seen spread it. chart. And then I, I was also you know, trying to think this through in terms of um, IOR. And so yes. let me go over to this. So first and foremost, um, do I have it right? Is this the Fed's balance sheet? Yeah, that's exactly right. This okay, is the weekly, cool. the, the H41. Okay, very cool. So uh, and it looks like we've got assets and then we've got uh, liabilities. <clears throat> so I'm looking at the liability. So first thing that I'm thinking of is if they have negative remittances to the uh, Treasury, then this means that uh, that is going to th- that that's going to blow a hole in their balance sheet, and they could yes. get to a point where they have negative equity. Now, I'm assuming that this liabilities and capital mm-hmm. would be their their equity, but I don't know that for sure. It looks like maybe 35 billion. Um, do you know where? I, yeah. I, so here's how here's where um, being the government is very handy. When you have losses, you don't have to write down your equity. In fact, you don't. If you're the Fed, yeah. uh, what you do is you create another asset. asset to, yes, yes. So, so you don't actually write that down. So where, but where is the uh, deferred, deferred asset? asset? Yeah, um, it's the, towards the bottom, right here. Uh, no, no. Because um, here's the asset right? lower. So it's recorded elsewhere. If you go down a bit lower, earnings or, remittances due to U.S. Treasury. Oh wait, that, that sounds it? right. Where is it? Right here. Yeah, 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 that's that's right. That's right. So negative 13. That's the net deferred asset right now. And um, so it's not very big, but it could get very big if we really do continue to hike rates and hold higher for longer. Yeah. And and so correct me if I'm wrong, but this can they'll have to add to this deferred asset in yeah, two two ways. Number one, if they sell an asset at a loss, and then number two, IOR. Because aren't you, you're increasing the liability side of the balance sheet exactly. without increasing the asset side. Exactly. That's that's why it's negative. And that's why it's probably going to go even larger, especially that's if the Fed really does hike rates to 5%. That, but here's exactly here's another part. Um, Can you share your screen, Joseph? Oh, no, I, I'm not looking at anything. Oh, okay. Do you want me to go back to that chart? So I, I would just add that here's, here's an interesting thing about where it's handy again to be the government. If you have an operating loss, you don't actually have to sell anything to come up with the money. What you do is you just print the difference. And so that this is kind of a basically how much the Fed had to print to make those interest rate payments that uh, it would can no longer afford. So right, yeah. But just so we're clear, just so the audience is is following what we're saying here, it, yes, the Fed can print their own money, but in doing so, they're creating an additional liability. 
and yes, when yes, and when and yes. when they print money to buy a treasury there's an offsetting asset exactly with that additional liability but when they are printing money to pay interest on the reserves they're they're literally just printing money they're not buying anything with it so therefore there's no offsetting asset yeah, which if you really asset. want to get technical here takes them further and further and further into insolvency if not for this little i would call an accounting gimmick of, of a deferred asset. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exactly right. It's an accounting gimmick. And, you know, so central banks around the world handle this differently. Sometimes um, they actually have to go and get money from from the from the their government to to pay for their operating losses. But uh, here at the US, this is how how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the next question would be, as someone who's worked at the Fed, and I'm sure you've maybe given this some thought, is there any limit to this account is there any limit do you think there's a point where the market sees this as like wait a minute whoa, whoa whoa time out here three trillion in deferred assets they're not going to make that much money that's 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 not possible and then they realize that the fed just based on gap accounting let's say uh or the spirit of gap accounting can't get back to positive equity does does that even matter I think that's a really good big picture question. But I would actually, instead of focusing on the Fed, just printing all this money to pay interest rate payments, I would also include what's happening with the US government. They're just you know, spending a trillion dollars in deficit every year, printing treasuries to pay for that. So from, from my perspective, I kind of lump that together. The Fed is paying, printing money to pay interest rate payments. The federal government is printing treasuries to go and pay their, their, their purchases. Now, is there a point where the market can handle it, where people will start to realize that this is crazy, where where uh, this is not sustainable. And then we have this big moment where maybe we have tremendous concerns about inflation. Maybe we lose confidence in the debt market and go people go and try to move their money elsewhere. Uh, historically, that, that usually happens. Um, I think maybe we are getting to a point in the coming years that that may happen here as well. Um, but when I what I hear from people in the markets and what I see in the market pricing, it seems like there's a lot of people who who don't really realize that maybe there might be a fundamental regime shift as well. So mm. um, as, as you I think as you suggest that this is not sustainable and probably will be lead, probably bring some kind of disruption um, in in the in the near to medium term. How do you, one more question here, I'll let you go. Just, and it's on the exact same lines here. I, I just thought of it. If let's just assume for a moment, we go to a central bank digital currency where the uh, average Joe and Jane has a reserve account, basically yeah. a checking account with the Fed, just like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Therefore, the assets of the average Joe become the liabilities of the Fed. And let's just assume for a moment they go to a uh, universal basic income. Yeah. So they're just depositing $2,000 of bank reserves into the average Joe and Jane's account every single month. If I'm understanding it correctly, that would lead to the exact same thing when it where they're just going further and further into negative equity unless they can somehow offset that additional liability by saying, okay, well, we gave the average Joe uh, a, a $2,000 in UBI, but it's a $1,000 uh loan or it's a it's a thousand year loan at zero percent interest or something like that it, and again another accounting gimmick or yeah, is there yeah. a way to offset that uh liability with an asset that i'm just not thinking about so if it were to happen in practice what would probably be the case would be that you would have the federal government send let's say me a thousand dollars in fed coin and then fund that thousand dollars by issuing a treasury so basically okay. how they operate now and then you would have the Fed buy that treasury. Okay. So uh, so it'd be offset by like a treasury security asset. But, um, you know, it's kind of all accounting gimmicky. Uh, one way to look at uh, the Fed and the U.S. government is to consolidate them together uh, if you cons because you know, the Fed is part of the government. So if you consolidate them together, just have one big balance sheet, uh, then, you know, it's it's really just, you know, you, you can you can it's just printing money out of thin air. Um, think of the federal government, for example. It issues treasuries. That's their liability. What are what are what's the asset? Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. Yellowstone they, Park, I massive guess. negative equity. Yeah, I remember um, reading that their assets are like three trillion. Uh, well, you know, it's 
how do you value nuclear warheads and tanks and Yellowstone <laughs> National Park, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> half the yeah. state of Nevada and so forth. So yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to know, but um, it, definitely not sustainable for sure. So do you think the Fed will just follow the two-year treasury? Uh, and what I've noticed there, and I, I saw Gunlock point this out, yeah. that if you if you go back in, even to the 1970s, uh, at the end of the night with Volcker, he took Fed funds quite a bit higher than the high water mark set by the two-year treasury. But since that time, uh, usually the Fed kind of gets up to that level and then starts to uh, pivot, we'll say. And then in 2018, they didn't even get up to that level. I think the high water mark was 3%. They got up to 2.5. Uh, do you think that, uh, and I think the high water mark set by the two-year was maybe 4.74, something like that. So do you think the Fed will get up to that level, maybe higher because we're in an inflationary environment? Or do you think maybe lower because the overall debts are, are bigger and that would cause the recession? So I, I actually don't think the Fed is worried too much about the level of debt. Uh, the reason being that bulk of the, I mean, a lot of the debt is public sector debt. And, you know, if you raise rates, you don't really affect government spending. Like Congress is not going to be like, oh, my interest rate payments are so high, I guess I better cut deficit spending. Uh, that's something you will never hear. And for the private sector people, well, a lot of people, their debt isn't locked in low, low interest rates. Let's say, uh, I think almost, let's say, 60 some people own a home. A lot of them, some of them own outright. And the people who do own them with mortgages, most of them are under 3% of mortgages. So having a large debt level and then raising rates it doesn't really affect a lot of a lot of actual people and doesn't affect the government as much either so i don't really think that's a constraint what we really should be focusing on is whether or not the fed will get to 5% is just labor wage inflation so okay. you just want to focus on the labor market and it looks like it's going to stay tight because of these demographic shifts um so far uh, one wage tracker that i like is the atlanta fed tracker and that gives you uh, basically monthly data it uses a big data set and it, it's showing that wage growth is basically stuck around six and a half percent and if that persists i, I think we definitely need to have uh, fed funds at five percent and i know that sounds really high but part of the reason why it it can get to that high is because the way that the interest rates affect the economy it's not as connected as it used to be if you have let's say you know most Americans having a 3% mortgage, then when you hike interest rates, that doesn't really do anything. In contrast, if you're a country like Canada or a country like the UK, uh, Australia, New Zealand, when their central banks are hiking rates, that immediately has an impact on the spending, well, not immediately, but, but that quickly feeds into their broader public because they have mortgages that have to renew periodically or are variable. And so monetary policy in the US, the transmission mechanism, the way that it affects the real economy is not as strong as it i think as it is in other countries and so that might be one of the reasons why the fed might have to have a higher rate to actually get the effect that they they need now just as a pause i know people talk about the corporate sector as well now here's a really interesting fact uh, that the interest rate coverage ratio which is a measure of how, how well the corporate sector can afford their interest rate measure uh, their interest payments is actually the highest it's been in 20 years and that has to do with the fact with their revenues increasing with inflation, but them locking in low rates from the uh, pandemic era and for, uh, for a few years, actually. So when the Fed hikes rates, it's not actually affecting the corporate sector all that much either. And because this, the impact of monetary policy on the real economy is uh, relatively weak right now, uh, I think that's one of the rationales the Fed has for being a little bit more aggressive than we would otherwise expect. Hmm. I wonder how, what's the average maturity on that or the average term on that debt yeah yeah so it's that, like three or four years on that, corporate that debt. yeah 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 so we're not really going to have significant let's say uh, resets refinancing for for uh two or three years yeah that makes me the, that makes me think about the uh, do you have do you have enough time to continue talking or do you need to get somewhere yeah we can have a few more minutes okay so that, I was just thinking about the fx swaps did you read that bis report that Brent yeah yeah i did so I, I'd be curious to know what your your thoughts are, and then then I'd, I'm just trying to think about that debt rolling over, and um, you know annually and how that might impact their ability. But I understand that that FX swap is really a it's like a repo. It's it's a collateralized loan, so there might not be 
that much risk. But anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So, so many of the people who, who, um, I mean, listen to this channel are pretty sophisticated, especially when it comes to real estate. So like, let's say when you have a mortgage, for example, you have a mortgage liability, but it's, you also have a house as an asset, right? So when you think about debt, uh, you got to look at liabilities, but also the assets, the whole balance sheet. Now the huge ginormous, was it 80 trillion, as you mentioned, uh, FX swap. That's just dollar yeah. denominated about a hundred trillion total. Okay. Just a very big number, big number of, uh, <laughs> what's a few trillion anyway, right? Uh, so, <laughs> so when you're thinking about the big number of um, FX swap debt, you got to also think about the asset side. What's, what is it funding? So just like people focus on a lot of mortgage debt, but then if you look at the houses they own, well, the houses have, have gone to the moon in the past few years. So even though you have a lot of mortgage debt, you have positive net worth by a lot. So when you're thinking about ethic swap debt, dollar debt, um, you have to think of what it's funding. And usually it's funding some kind of dollar denominated asset. For example, let's say you're a Japanese life insurer. Rates are really shitty in your country. So what do you do? You go and you buy uh, U.S. mortgages or U.S. treasuries, you fund that in the FX swap. So you have this hidden dollar debt, as the BIS would call it, and you use the proceeds to buy U.S. dollar denominated assets. So there's the asset liability side there as well. Now, where does debt become a problem? It becomes a problem because the FX swap debt is short term. It's generally, let's say you have to, let's say, roll it over every few weeks, every few months, things like that. So you're kind of borrowing short and lending long. Yeah. It's a little bit like how you end up having a variable rate mortgage. So you can get- That really was my point. And you're tied yeah. at the hip and, you're, uh, and your yeah. counterparty is the Fed. So you're really screwed if interest rates go higher and for some reason you can't roll over then your debt. Then what, what do you do? Well, you got to fire sell your assets. You have to go, uh, let's say you have, let's say you borrowed a billion dollars in the FX swap market to buy agency MBS. Suddenly rates go higher in the FX swap market well, you're kind of screwed then, right? Unless you want to have an operating loss. So what you do is you just kind of sell your agency MBS and go and repay your loan. And sometimes that that kind of fire and sell dynamic can hurt financial markets and be destabilizing. And there are also cases where it's not just the rates go higher. Maybe there's a disruption in the market and you can't renew your FX swap loan at any price. And then you're really right. screwed. And that's happened in the past. It happened during the GFC and it happened during the 2020 COVID crash as well. But... Here's the thing that makes me much less worried about that now. So in, during the GFC, the Fed rolled out its FX swap lines, where it's basically willing to be the lender of last resort to the FX swap market. And that was mm -hmm. tremendously stabilizing. So uh, at that time, the FX swap market was in panic. You can see that their, their rates expressed as a spread over um, what the Fed's policy rate was, was enormous. Once the FX swap facilities came out, that spread shrinked. Same thing happened during COVID. Fed wrote out of its FX swap lines, expanded it, and everything was okay. And now they, they're, they're, the FX swap lines are still there. So that means that this liquidity event where people are not able to roll over their short-term loans is very unlikely to happen. And so that means that you know, it, it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really worry about it simply because the Fed is backstopping it. Yeah, but so there's FX risk there that if let's just assume that they had euro cash flow coming in and they owe dollars and then there would be interest rate risk and then there would be liquidity risk. But you're saying liquidity, the liquidity risk could be uh, dampered by the, the Fed swap line. I think the BIS, if they were to push back on you, they'd say, yes, you're right, Joseph. But th because this market is so opaque, the Fed doesn't really know where all of this is they, they don't know where this um this risk is is it in the the hong kong is it in you know obviously uh, it can't be equally spread throughout the entire world or maybe it is so then if the fed only has swap lines set up with the swiss central bank as an example then how do we know that that they're going to be that all of the liquidity needs are going to be able to satisfy via that one swap line or via the the 20 swap lines that they have I think that was yeah. the BIS. That's, a, that's, kind of no, the that, that's, that's worth thinking about. So I'm still not very worried about that because, I mean, if half of your lawn is flooded, then the rest of it gets wet as well. Yeah, so right. um, so here, here's how I think about this. So in the global financial markets, it's very uneven. So you have the U.S. and Western Europe with huge, huge, deep financial markets in Japan as well. 
And you have all these other smaller developing countries like Bangladesh and so forth who have very limited financial markets. So the Fed, the people that the Fed deals with, they are very, they're like super deep and sophisticated financial markets and they can account for the bulk of the financial system. And so when money gets to them, it trickles out to, to the other people as well. And it's not just in theory. We see this in practice as well. So again, when the Fed rolled out the swap lines during um, the GFC and during 2020, it, it really calmed down global fund, dollar fund conditions, even if like in smaller currencies that, um, that people don't really focus on. So it, it seemed to work well then. Yeah, yeah. I think... But, the still, but people still need to realize that even if there is a dollar swap line with XYZ Central Bank, that that is just giving them access to dollars, but they still have to lend. They, there still has to be a, a, a sufficient risk reward, right? So it, 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 the, the liquidity boils down to counterparty risk at the end of the day, not necessarily the amount of dollars, although the amount of dollars does uh, does skew the equation, Right. So I'm just thinking about a theoretical where if the the perceived risk was high enough, even if the dollars are there, that liquidity won't get to that company in Bangladesh because they, the, the bank would still have to lend them money understanding or that there's a high degree of probability that they're going to get the money back. Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. that is, so if you have some kind of, um, so financial accident there, then you have a credit risk component as well, as you noted. Or COVID Maybe. would be a great example there, I guess. Or maybe people just don't want to lend. So yeah, yeah. so that that's that that will play a role as well. So it, it's not going to be perfect. All right, buddy. I sure appreciate your time. For my viewers, want to find out more about what you do? Where can they get the book? Where can they follow you online? Um, you know, Brent just started a podcast, dude. So you're oh, next, really? man. You're next. <laughs> awesome, awesome, <laughs> awesome. Congratulations to him. He's been on top of this dollar milkshake thing. He's been doing great. Um, well, thanks so much for having me. So. Again, I'm on Twitter. My handle is FedGuy12. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. And uh, yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about the uh, financial system, central banking, you can also check out my website, FedGuy.com. And right. my book, Central Banking 101, on Amazon and very well reviewed. Thanks so awesome. much, George. All right, Joseph. Have a good one, buddy. Bye.